Law school promises a great many things to future lawyers. An exceptional score on the LSAT exam has the potential to open doors at the nation's most prestigious universities. And once you're in those halls, a century-old curriculum promises to shape your mind into a great logical thinker and problem solver for your generation. Does it actually deliver on those promises, though? Does the admissions process make sense? And what about inside the classroom? Is that curriculum working for women and people of color? That's what we aim to uncover in our series, The Law School Promise. Welcome to Law360 Explores. I'm Stephen Trader. I'm a reporter here at Law360, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Amber McKinney. Hi, Amber. Hi, Steve. I'm excited to be here. I'm one of the managing editors at Law360, and I suspect the real reason I'm on this show is because I went to law school. Well, that's not the only reason. I mean, you are one of my very favorite people here at Law360, and actually a professional podcaster in your own right. Between the two of us, you host our show, Pro Se. Um, But over the years that we've worked together, the topic of law school has actually come up quite a bit, and you've shared a lot of stories with us that we've laughed about and cringed about sometimes. And Cringed is the right word. You're being really kind with my stories. Usually I'm sort of complaining about woes related to law school. Yeah, and I think we always, whenever we talk about those stories, we're always like, is law school really like that? Like, why is that? And so... The idea for this series was kind of born out of that. We decided to take a step back and and really think about why law school is the way that it is and maybe some things that can be done to change it. So we're spending a couple of episodes talking with experts about the ways that law school maybe could do better. And let's start with how you actually get there first. And that means we're talking about the LSAT. Amber, I'm calling on your experience right off the bat. I don't want to sound too basic here, but I think it's worth saying to anybody listening that maybe hasn't taken this exam, the LSAT's hard. Um, and I don't just mean the, the test itself in terms of what it covers, although that is difficult as well. But I also mean it's hard because there's a lot of pressure. It's such a key metric to where you, you end up getting into law school that I think there's a lot of focus placed on that one exam. Yeah, it sure seems that way. I mean, I didn't take the LSAT exam. I didn't go to law school. I took the GRE to get into grad school. And even for that, I remember it was a lot of studying, a lot of prep. I had to pay for prep materials and take practice tests. And that in itself was an expensive process. And that was a lot of pressure. And then I think for for law school, that ramps up even more with the LSAT. Right. And I really want us to get into it today, talking about the LSAT and why it does have this sort of special and outsized place in the admissions process for law school. There are certainly other things you submit as part of your application um, to any school you're trying to get into, you know, personal statements, letters of recommendation, obviously your GPA from undergrad. But that singular weight on, on the LSAT exam, I think, leads to a lot of potential problems. Right. And we are going to get into all of those in this episode. But first, let's start with this question. What does the LSAT actually even measure anyway? The test isn't a measure of your strength or your talent or your 
academic capability by any means. It's a measure of how well you can take the test. That's Jamal Bailey, and he graduated from the District of Columbia David A. Clark School of Law this year and joined Paul Weiss as an associate. But Jamal isn't a recent law school grad taking a parting shot at the LSAT. He's actually a former LexisNexis African Ancestry Network fellow, and his fellowship project focused on exploring the ways that law school admissions process is impacted by systemic racism. Who takes the test better than the other? The person with the resources that was able to get the coaching, able to get the reps, and learn the test from the perspective of it's not about what you know, it's about how you perform on the test. And that takes more times than that money, time, access to even know where to start from. And who do we know with money, time, and access to privileged people? It's interesting to hear from Jamal about this, not just as a researcher, but also as a recent graduate who's been through it. Before law school, he worked in management consulting. He has a degree in finance. So he has some resources and some know-how and professional experience. But he says that even for him, the LSAT process was still a huge burden. That circle of influence to like, hey, if you want to go to law school, this is how you do it. You just didn't see that in certain schools. You just didn't see that in certain schools that couldn't afford you know, those resources. And then the access component of it, if I don't know to look for it, you know, like, or if, if it doesn't, if it's not talked about in the classroom, if it's not talked about at home, then it takes a person to kind of go out there and paint this picture of, okay, I want to go to law school. This is the site I'm supposed to register for. Oh, wait, that's 150. Hey, mom, do we have 150? No. Okay. So, hey, shift manager, I got to pick up extra hours, right? It's, it's, it's coming from a place of that lack of access is completely to the disadvantage of people who can't afford it. So, like I said, it's not a test of strength or academic capability or even like, you know, your ability to reason through logic and things like that. It's the, te- it's the ability to take this test and execute it well. And the only way to get good at that is to have an access and the resources to practice and rep it and get the feedback directly. Jamal makes some good points about how your socioeconomic status can really impact your success on the LSAT. But I do want to be clear as we continue talking about the exam that it's a little tricky to discuss because you can't really say it serves zero purpose in the admissions process. It's designed to at least partially predict first-year success of law students, and there is some evidence to support that. We talked to Aaron Taylor. He's the executive director of the Access Lex Center for Legal Education Excellence. That's a group that conducts research focused on improving the law school experience. And he actually wrote an article for Law 360 earlier this year that noted some research showing a one-point increase in your LSAT score is associated with a 0.03% increase in your first-year law school GPA. That number may sound small, but there is a statistical correlation between that LSAT score and at least your first-year performance. The problem, though, according to Aaron and some others, is that law schools have placed too much emphasis on just that LSAT score. So instead of thinking about it as one component of a whole bunch of things you send in with your application, schools have come to rely on the LSAT score as a primary metric. And as a byproduct, there's a component of diversity that's being harmed. You know, in a perfect world, let's just just imagine a scenario, and I wouldn't call it perfect, that's actually the wrong word. But let's just imagine a scenario where the LSAT was like a crystal ball and it told us everything about who is going to be successful, how successful they will be, 
how many times they would have to take the bar, all of that kind of stuff. Let's assume that the, a world in which the LSAT actually did that. And if it had that, that impact on diversity, you could almost say that, wow, that's an unfortunate byproduct and maybe there's some other things we can do to improve scores, but the test is actually telling us what we need to know, right? The LSAT doesn't do that. The LSAT is designed to be a partial predictor of first year performance. And there is much evidence that it serves that function. Um, the problem, however, is that in the absence of, of other information that is perceived as objective um, by law schools, law schools misuse the test, right? Um, they place uh, uh, more weight on test scores than is justified by the test predictive power. They overemphasize uh, test scores in their admission process. And so this is how the diversity piece matches up with the actual policies and practices. So you have a misuse of the test that leads to lower diversity. Let's get into that diversity piece that Aaron is talking about. The most recent data on law school demographics shows that students of color now make up more than 30%, which seems pretty good. Some top-tier law schools are now reporting incoming classes worth more than 40% of students identifying as a person of color. But there is more that you need to know. Aaron's team at AccessLex found back in 2019 that it took almost 2,000 black law school applicants to yield 1,000 offers of admission, compared to 1,200 among white applicants and 1,300 overall. Essentially, what we found was that fewer than half of, of Black law school applicants were uh, getting at least one admission offer uh, to a law school. So that means the majority of Black law school applicants were being denied everywhere they applied. And the average was around 70 percent, 72, 73, somewhere in there. Uh, the, the percentage for for Asian uh, American and, and white applicants was in the mid to high 70s. Now, when you look at the average test scores for each of those groups, the admit rates align almost directly with the test scores. Asian American and white applicants have the highest average, average LSAT score, and so they have the highest admit rate. Latinos have uh, the second highest average, and they have the second highest admit rate. Black law school applicants have the lowest average and they have the lowest admit rate. And so this is what we're talking about when the, the disparities in test scores have real world implications for who gets the opportunity to study law. So on the one hand here, you hear statistics about how law school demographics are improving with 30 to 40 percent diversity in classrooms. And that sounds great. But then you hear Aaron's numbers and realize, oh, man, it takes twice as many Black applicants to make the classroom diversity a reality. And that's jarring. So let's just take a big leap here and ask the question, should we just get rid of the LSAT then? It makes you wonder, right? And I know there's more to this story because there's something you uncovered in your reporting that I didn't even realize, even though I took the LSAT and went to law school. And that's that testing is actually a mandated part of the admissions process. Yeah, there is actually a requirement that law schools must consider a valid and reliable admissions test from applicants seeking admission to law school. I got to tell you, that surprises me because I don't think other graduate programs work that way. They aren't quite as strict about that kind of requirement. No, you're totally right. They are not as strict. So let's get into some of the American Bar Association bylaws that accredited law schools must follow. 
There's two here that are important for our discussion. The first is Standard 501, which says that law schools cannot admit an applicant who does not appear capable of completing its legal education program. And I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, law school is difficult and also very expensive. So you don't want to admit a bunch of people that can't actually make it to the end and become successful lawyers. So, you know, you want someone who's generally fit to make it all the way through law school. Right, exactly. So standard 501 is the big one that holds law schools accountable for who they let in. But then standard 503 takes it a step further with a mandate that schools use a standardized test to weed out candidates. And that's where experts like Aaron Taylor say the problems really begin. It is really unprecedented for an accreditor to require that schools use a specific tool in selecting students. And in this case, that tool is a valid and reliable admission test, which up until last year meant the LSAT specifically. It is unprecedented for an accreditor to delve into the specifics of of a school's admission process in that way. None of the other professional accreditors uh, require the use of admission tests. None of the regional accreditors that that accredit entire universities uh, mandate or or encourage admission tests. But what they do is require that the process a school uses, the admission process that a school uses, uh, it must be transparent and it must be designed to ensure that only people capable of doing the work are admitted. That's what accreditors focus on. And that is what standard 501, uh, uh, APA standard 501 actually does. It states that schools must not admit students who appear unable to complete the program and to pass the bar. And so for us, that standard says it all, right? It lays out the expectation in clear fashion, but it allows schools to figure out for themselves how they go about selecting their students. And this is important because we all know that all standardized tests really, LSAT included, there are profound racial and ethnic disparities, score disparities, that end up depressing the number of of underrepresented students uh, who are enrolled in classes. And so removing this standard, standard 503, will potentially give schools um, the breathing room, if you will, to try out different methods of selecting students, but knowing the whole time that they're going to be held accountable for what comes out on the back end. The branch of the ABA that handles legal education policy doesn't necessarily disagree with criticisms of 503. It knows there's a bit of a problem on its hands. And all the way back in 2018, there was a proposal to eliminate the standardized testing mandate. Under that proposal, schools could still require an admission score, but they wouldn't have to. The proposal didn't move forward then, but it was actually reintroduced earlier this year. So we talked to Bill Adams, the managing director and head of the council of the ABA section of legal education and admissions to the bar. He told us that one of the main reasons the push to end 503 is back is that the ABA is the only accreditor left that requires a standardized test. I think um, the council and I want us to look at what other accreditors are doing and try to be consistent and, you know, understand um why you know they're doing things the way they are and whether we should sort of conform to sort of the standards of accreditors so one it was we were really seemingly out of touch with what accreditation was requiring the second reason bill mentioned for 503 to be eliminated is that the aba council feels like it's time to move away from telling schools how to do things there's long been a 
criticism of legal education that there's not a lot of creativity or innovation in it. And part of the criticism has been our standards that require schools to do things a certain way. And so um, the council has been trying to think about, well, as long as, as schools are getting good outcomes, let's allow some flexibility and creativity in how they get to those outcomes and spend less of our resources and efforts on trying to micromanage how they do things. And so this seemed to be consistent with that, that as long as they're admitting people capable of succeeding and those people graduate and they can get admitted to practice, we should give them the flexibility to figure out how to best do that. So here's a little bit about the Council of the ABA Section of Legal Education and Admissions to the Bar. It's an associated but independent body of the ABA, and so when it proposes an amendment or a rule change, it presents it as a resolution to the ABA's House of Delegates to get input from the profession. Now, if the delegates agree with the proposal, it becomes final, it's done. But the delegates can also send it back to the Council for reconsideration, they can do that twice. The council doesn't really have to reconsider anything. I mean, it has the power to finalize any proposal it wants to, but Bill says that input from the profession is taken extremely seriously. And so far, the council's received over 100 comments on the new proposal to eliminate 503. And they do seem to be an even mix between some people saying it should be kept, some saying eliminate the standard, and then a group that says there should be some sort of middle ground here. Back in 2018, when the council last considered changing Section 503, there was a lot of opposition, particularly related to that diversity concern we've talked about. Probably the strongest pushback, the one that folks say was really the death knell there, came from a widely respected group of law school admissions leaders who were part of something called the Minority Network Organization. So the main focus of the Minority Network is to look out for the interests of minority individuals and students, and they basically serve as a hub to connect them with resources, mentors, and opportunities. And so it's a really important role that they serve to help create equal opportunities. I actually reached out to the group for comment, and as of this recording, I hadn't heard anything back. I hadn't seen a a public comment from them related to this year's proposal. But back in 2018, they wrote a letter saying that the group believes that a commonly accepted admissions test increases the likelihood that all applicants, but particularly those from underrepresented and disadvantaged groups, will be fairly evaluated. They said that schools need every possible tool to evaluate candidates before they enter law school, and that the LSAT is one unifying, comparable element among all candidates. Without it, they said that schools will be on their own to come up with measurable standards. Before the LSAT, when other factors like undergraduate programs were considered, there was no real objective criteria and underrepresented groups suffered from that lack of access. So I think those are some fairly strong points that they make there. I do see what they're saying that before a standardized admission test was sort of the norm, it was basically a free-for-all of what uh, any admissions officer decided made someone a good candidate for law school. And at least now, if you're a candidate of color with an excellent test score, you can't be denied. Right. And, you know, given their influence on the 2018 proposal, I sort of used the Minority Network's letter as a jumping off point when I interviewed people this time around. Um, It obviously made some strong points back then, and I wanted to see how the thinking on those issues had evolved. 
So Bill Adams, who leads the council, he told me something interesting about the fact that there will still be oversight. Remember, Standard 501 is not going away. Schools must still admit the most qualified candidates. And in fact, Bill said the council wants to take it even one step further. Part of the proposal is to boost the ABA Section 501 to make it clear that schools need to assess how they are finding the most qualified candidates. So schools will have more flexibility, but the ABA will still keep an eye on their admissions procedures. So if they choose, the law school chooses to stop using standardized test scores for some of their applicants, you know, the expectation by the council is that then you assess how that might affect um, your graduation and bar passage rates, for example. So 501 is still there. It's still requiring schools to do that. I think schools take that seriously. They understand um, both from a regulatory standpoint to admit people who aren't capable of succeeding will get them in trouble with the council. And I also think they understand from a, a public image perspective, if they have high failure rates, if they have low bar passage rates, it's going to hurt their public image, it's going to hurt their ability to recruit uh, more students. And so I don't think any school wants to have bad graduation and bad bar passage rates, um, regardless of our standard, but our standard also is still going to require that they think seriously about their admissions policies and um, you admitting people with criteria that may not be good predictors of ultimate success. I also asked Aaron Taylor about the network's letter. Ironically, he actually used to lead the minority network back in the early 2000s, and he has great respect for the organization and what they stand for. He shares the same ideological goals. But in this instance, he was adamantly opposed. And I mean, he really bristles at the notion that the LSAT has been some sort of saving grace for diversity in legal education. The standardized tests, including the LSAT, has never served as a broad-based path of opportunity for, for people of color. It's never happened, particularly underrepresented people of color. Black applicants, Latino applicants, it has literally never served in that role. Now, it has worked that way for other people, for other people who were being discriminated against 60, 70 years ago. Um, um, and so it has worked that way for other folks, but it has never been a broad-based path to opportunity for Black applicants and Latino applicants. It just simply isn't true. So when people tell that story, tell that narrative, they're leaving out a major piece of context that is very relevant and very important to this discussion. Those are some very strong opinions on the Standard 503 proposal. There are others who are kind of closer to a middle ground, including Anthony Verona. He's the dean of Seattle University School of Law. How much weight should be placed on the LSAT? That really is key. Does the LSAT predict success in the legal profession? No. Does the LSAT assess overall intelligence? No. Does the LSAT assess diligence and ethics and community-mindedness and empathy and emotional intelligence and all of the other things that make a great lawyer? No, no, no. What the LSAT does reasonably well is predict academic success in the first year of law school. That's all it really does, and that's enough. So, so long as law schools use it for that purpose, then it is valuable as one of many aspects of a candidate's application. 
Dean Farone is active in legal education and social justice reform, and he shares a lot of concerns about how the LSAT is used. He recognizes the disadvantages for underrepresented groups, but for him, the diversity argument cuts both ways. He thinks there's value for standardized testing in the admissions world, and that it can help schools actually identify underrepresented students who otherwise might not stand out if they were judged just on things like their undergraduate GPA. And the fact that something like the LSAT can predict first-year success is important because you don't want to put any student in a position to fail. I myself am a critic of standardized testing. And, uh, and, and so I take those arguments very seriously. And I do think that we need to address a lot of the systemic and structural uh, disadvantages that are in place that are unfair to uh, students of color, to first-generation students, and many other students. And, and, and so those are challenges that we have to confront. But I'm not sure that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, particularly since the LSAT provides underrepresented students with value. And the other thing to know is that a lot of the critique that I've been hearing has to do with how the LSAT is not predictive of a student's intelligence, is not predictive of uh, how much they will succeed as lawyers. And that's absolutely right, right? But that's that goes more towards how we are using the LSAT in these admissions processes. Are we using it to predict success in the legal profession? Are we using it to predict or, or, or to assess a student's overall intelligence? If so, then I agree that those are inappropriate uses of a standardized test. If, however, we are using the LSAT to reasonably predict a student's success in the first year of law school, then okay, that's how it was designed. That's what it was designed to do. And it, and it does that job fairly and, and reasonably well. And so long as we are using it just for that very limited purpose, then the student's application can be viewed much more holistically, much more broadly, with a lot of different factors weighed. If we are only admitting the student based on their LSAT and their GPA for rankings or other purposes, then I completely agree that is a misuse of the LSAT and should not be something that we tolerate. I think one important thing to note here in the conversation about the LSAT uh, keeping it and using it in a way that's more holistic, that seems to be a very useful idea, but it still doesn't address the point that we made at the very outside of this episode, which is that, you know, it's a privileged test, right? It takes significant resources to take that, and not everyone has those resources. I asked Dean Verona about this, and it's definitely on his mind as well. A lot of those same barriers will be present for the student as they compete in the first law school year, right? So a student that is disadvantaged socioeconomically will not be on the same playing field with other more socioeconomically advantaged students in the first year of law school. Uh, so some of the same um, uh, elements of unfairness that uh, are leveled unfairly against a student and taking the LSAT will also be present for the for the student in how they compete against other students around GPA, 
around classroom performance in the first year. So, you know, those are problems that we need to tackle. Those are problems that we need to address head on. Uh, so I am not in any way saying that the LSAT is a, is a perfect test, is a, is a perfectly fair test. But I, I am skeptical about uh, what would happen if we eliminated the, L, uh, the LSAT altogether and then had to depend on other metrics that perhaps have even more bias in them and would make things even more unfair for underrepresented students and students of color. We know there's going to be some kind of standard here, right? And the question now is, what makes sense? I think there's a pretty clear case that the LSAT maybe shouldn't be the be-all, end-all of law school admissions. Some students would like it better if we just went on some, some good vibes. I don't know if that's the answer either. But one thing the ABA has tried is to allow the GRE to be a score that's considered instead of the LSAT. Yeah, I aced the vibes test, actually, but the GRE, not so much. So I'm not sure I still would have gotten in, but I, I, I could have had a chance. Steve. Yeah, you got a chance. Great vibes for law school. Um, <laughs> I will say, as we talk about the GRE, though, it is just another standardized test, right? So we may be just swapping one standardized test for another and, and still encountering some of the same or similar problems. That can also be said of undergraduate GPA as a metric. It's often... Uh, discussed as having its own biases. So uh, I'm left a little bit at a, at a loss here because it's a messy issue with no obvious solution. Yeah, it's really kind of tough, but there is a whole package of materials that candidates have to submit. And Aaron Taylor from Access Lex was pretty enthusiastic about schools using some of those components more effectively than he thinks that they currently do. Practically every law school requires applicants to submit a personal statement. What are schools doing with it? And is there any evidence that the statement is helping predict uh, success or, or it's detracting? You know, like, like what are we doing with the personal statements that, again, practically every law school requires? That seems to be a fertile opportunity uh, for, for inquiry and study. Aaron really has a lot to say about this. And one of the reasons he's so interesting to talk to is that before he joined Access Lex, he was in an admissions office. He had that firsthand experience with applications and evaluating them. And he gave some insight into something that for me personally was a little tough to hear. I worked really hard on my personal statement when I applied to law school. And according to Aaron, that maybe was a waste of my time. The personal statement and, and the letters of recommendation, well, the personal statement was most relevant when it was horrible because you're thinking to yourself, wow, this person can't write and they also don't have the resources or, or, or maybe the savvy to get somebody to proofread this thing before they submit it to us. Uh, and then the, the, per, the letters of recommendation were most relevant when it was kind of a borderline case and I wanted to get a sense of how, say, a professor felt about the person's academic acumen. But that's all anecdotal kind of one off type stuff. And frankly, I don't know if, if my, you know, my read of this stuff was even effective. So that those are areas of inquiry. When we talk about holistic, multi-pronged admission, those are some of the primary factors that I think we can leverage in ways that will give them actual predictive value that schools can now consider with confidence. So if we're looking forward, Amber, I mean, like we said earlier, the ABA is still considering that proposal to eliminate the mandate for standardized testing. There could be an answer to that very soon. I mean, they could eliminate it as early as next year. So we're really going to have to see what happens with that. We're kind of in a middle ground right now. 
eliminating 503 would, in fact, be a huge change. But I do want to say this, even barring ending that standard, what can potentially happen is that more and more law schools think about their own admissions process. If 503 stays a requirement, they may have to continue considering a standardized test like the LSAT and have it be a part of their package. But part is the operative word here. It could be just one thing that they give a little less weight to than they do right now to kind of put it more on par with your GPA, your letter of recommendation, your personal statement. We're in a period of of questioning and self-reflection in legal education that I think is absolutely powerful. Legal education does not tend to be very open to change. We're very tradition bound. We're, We're teaching the same foundational curriculum that we've been teaching for over a century. That tells you a whole lot about about how legal education views change and reform and all of that. But we're in a period that I think is really historic where we're questioning everything, all of the sacred cows, everything that we consider unchangeable, we're questioning them. And so there's just more appetite in general for considering a world where a 503 doesn't exist. Thank you for listening to episode one of Law 360 Explores, The Law School Promise. We have several people we want to thank for today's episode, including our guests and interviewees, Jamal Bailey, Anthony Verona, Bill Adams, Aaron Taylor. We also want to thank our co-producer, Kelly Marcano. He did the music for this show and the graphics and some of the editing and just all around great to have him on board. We also want to thank the Law360 Newsroom and all of their reporting. We've written several articles about law school and check out our website if you want to read any of those. It's always great to have great reporting back you up when you're doing a series like this. And stay tuned for episode two when we actually walk through the halls of the law school and we sit down in the classroom and face the dreaded cold call. <laughs>